Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crew. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. On today's podcast, we're talking about a long-running preoccupation of cinema, sex work. From taxi driver to pretty woman, sex workers have frequently appeared in the movies as both tragic and romantic figures, but rarely as, well, workers. Two recent releases offer a different, more complex perspective. Lizzie Borden's 1986 cult classic, Working Girls, which was restored and released by Criterion Collection in July, and Simon Liang's latest feature, Days. We sat down with critics So Mayer and Sarah Fonseca to talk about the ways in which these films reflect on questions of labor, representation, performance, care, and more. The conversation quickly branched out to many more films, including Leila Weinrob's Shakedown, Hu Xiaoxian's Flowers of Shanghai, Antonio Pietrangeli's Ajua and Her Friends, Rainer Werner Fassbender's Clarel, and many others. We hope you enjoy the conversation. We are excited to have two incredible guests who've never been on the podcast before, and we're so lucky to have them join us. Let me introduce, first of all, So. Hi, thanks. I'm so excited to be here. I'm So Mayer. I'm a film critic and curator based in London in the UK. Great to have you here, So, joining us from across the waters. One of the advantages of this the Zoom environment is that the podcast can go global. So thank you for joining us. And uh, our other guest is someone I've known for many years, Sarah. Hi, Devika. It's a pleasure to be in touch again. Yeah, we met during the Critics Academy at Lincoln Center in 2017. Yes, and going strong still as critics in New York City, I suppose. I've written for places like IndieWire and Reverse Shot and the LARB. And I also have done a bit of programming for NewFest. So definitely this this conversation embodies a lot of the things I love about the movies. So I'm excited to talk to you both. Great. Thanks for coming to both of you. So we wanted to start off with a, a discussion of a film that was recently restored and released. Lizzie Borden's 1986 film, Working Girls. And so you wrote a beautiful essay about this film for the Criterion Edition. I wonder if you could maybe walk us through sort of a thumbnail sketch of what Lizzie Borden's film is all about and why why it's germane to our discussion here today. Sure. I want to start by saying just how exciting it is that there is a Criterion edition of this film, because for so long, it's been very challenging to see. And it's a really major entry into both the downtown New York art cinema that includes Betty Gordon's Variety, a film with which it shares lots of characteristics and some personnel, including Nan Goldine, but also the last edge of the 1970s independent American cinema that focuses on working class people, that focuses on snappy dialogue, that imagines alternate futures. So Working Girls, the title sums it up. It's set in a brothel. It's quite an exclusive brothel. And one of the workers there is Molly, who is a photographer, an art photographer, and she has a sort of special deal because the madam likes her as someone who she feels brings a more high-class clientele to the brothel. So Molly works one shift a week 
And in a sense, the drama of the film is that this is the first day that she's ever been asked to work two shifts back to back. And the film is a film of two halves, Molly on the day shift, with two other workers called Gina and Dawn, who have a strong rapport and divide the clients up among them, amongst themselves. And then the darker evening and night half of the film when two other workers, Debbie and April, come in and issues of race and class come to the fore. And a new worker called Mary, who is trying out at the brothel and is dismissed because she is a primary carer. She's a parent whose child interrupts the fantasy world that the brothel offers its clients. And one of the things that I love about the film is that it can be summarized that neatly, but it's a very interior drama. It's a very spiky conversational drama. It's a hilarious sort of Brechtian theatrical drama as all of these different sexual fantasies are staged with clients. And at the same time, it's a portrait of an artist trying to make it work in New York at the point of gentrification. The film is released the year before Wall Street, and it just feels like this this moment of tipping, like, will Molly get free? Will she become an artist? How will she square out with her relationship with her partner, Diane? And it's such a fascinating portrait of New York. I say as not a New Yorker, and I'm waiting for everyone to come down on me on that, that we almost don't see. There's almost none of New York. It's almost entirely seen from inside of the brothel, uh, watching these women in work in this very surveilled environment that is it's quite tense at some moments and as I say very funny and very passionate at others. Sarah you've written about this subject the representation of sex work in cinema and you're also you know an artist writer in New York and I'm curious when you first encountered Working Girls and what impression it made on you. Oh, oh my goodness. See, I, I've had so much more experience with the rest of Borden's canon, even Love Crimes, the movie with Sean Young that she's disavowed. So I came back to this actually for the new release. First experience was the pristine cut that we're talking about today. And and I, it was just, I, I love the deadpan of it so much there's just like every woman in the film is in on the joke as is Borden and it's just like oh it's it's this this like welcome feeling of watching cinema that's like watching paint dry but in a very favorable way because it's like your particular shade of paint so and you'll have to forgive the the housing metaphors I, I just moved myself so I've been thinking a lot about interiors and how they show up in these films that try to tackle sex work and it's kind of just the beating heart of where we live these bedrooms in particular and, and I just found it very compelling that it, it does a lot of clever juxtaposing just in its opening and its conclusion because it is very much a full day very Cleo (laughs) five to seven in in this way where it's just like the the stretch of time you're going to spend with these women and you don't necessarily know what's going to come out of it but in the opening you see that the main woman in this brothel waking up with a partner who's a woman of color and then there's a child moseying through the house so you're introduced to her interior life in a completely radically different space that is is a very 
it's not too dissimilar from Brooklyn pre-war these days, you know, the, the chipped paint, the walls that are miles thick, it feels like. So I think I was very taken aback by, oh, the, these economies never really change. They're always there if you've partaken in, in that type of profession and and you recognize them. And I think that's one of those feelings that sometimes is over-esteemed in film criticism, but I think that feeling of recognition I have for this movie, even if I can't necessarily relate to some of the context of how the work is being done, it, that was very touching. And likewise, it, it kind of fulfills this film lineage that that I always go back to Pitrangeli's Attawa and Her Friends, which was released, I think in 1960 under the title Hungry for Love in the United States, which, which it's, it's about, how this group of women who were previously engaged in legal prostitution and escorting and services of that kind wind up having to build a restaurant as a front for their brothel enterprise in Italy upon the inaction of the Merlin Code in the late 1950s that I think outlawed brothels entirely. So like you see the history of New York City and working girls, it's, it, 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 it very much resembles that context of, of what you're doing remains, even if decrim is activated, you still have to maintain public, public presentations and performances where it still remains this kind of binary in culture, regardless of what the law does or does not do. And, and I think it's, I, I just, I'm fascinated by um, Borden's potential references for this. So I know you mentioned earlier when we were speaking Fastbinder, and I was just thinking about the interiors and Petra von Kant, and I'm sure you were probably thinking of Fox and his friends, maybe. I was thinking about Fox and his friends, and then also by contrast, Carrel, because so often the depictions of sex work that we see are related to spaces like cabarets, the public fronts. I'm thinking also of the strip club in Jane Campion's In the Cut. So the sense of sex workers as performers. We were also talking about um, Leila Weinraub's film Shakedown and the very particular relations that we can tease out perhaps between performance in erotic settings and sex work and the assumptions that go around them and the legislation that goes around them as well. But absolutely thinking about the contrast also between Born and Flames, Lizzie Borden's second film, um, the film for which he's best known, which takes place, people often think of it as very much a street-based film. It's a film where the action takes place on the street in protest marches, in girl gangs on bikes, hunting down rapists, in a great U-Haul heist, possibly the most lesbian storyline ever conceived in cinema. But so many of the scenes which I've been, I've been re-watching recently take place in these intimate spaces between lovers, between friends, political organizing is taking place in these interiors, which may be the only spaces where people feel safe. Um, they're often very temporary. And I was fascinated re-watching Working Girls to think about how it inverted that. So it's actually the moments when Molly goes out uh, she takes a break um, between the two shifts to go and buy KY jelly and condoms from a nearby pharmacy. I think possibly making it one of the first American feature films to actually mention condoms, but that not in a comedic sense. And she sits in a playground and watches kids and families at play and watches the sunset. And there's this inversion where 
it feels like the spaces of the city that she traverses as, as an artist, as a step parent, as a citizen, are the ones that feel safer to her than the brothel comes to feel once she is put in this situation of not having the privilege of choosing that to work the day shift with her known clients. And absolutely those, those contrasts of the interior and exterior space come up in Paris is Burning, another film that I think we wanted to mention and a film that I'm super passionate about, which is a short called Lucid Noon Sunset Blush by Ali Logout. It's a 2015 short film and they won the 2019, I always have to get the wording right, Barbara Hammer Lesbian Experimental Filmmaking Grant for a feature which has developed out from this short, which is about a sex work collective, a femme of color sex work collective squatting uh, in Texas. And it just felt like in to me, in between Working Girls and Lucid Moon Sunset Blush, those spaces, particularly those interior spaces, what Ali's film describes as femme supremacy, had not been seen. The possibilities of connection and organizing between women and femmes occurring in those spaces. Just back to thinking of how enigmatic interiors are in Born in Flames and Working Girls, the people in this brothel aren't exactly, you know, organizing a coup or a protest or revolutionizing or abolishing sex work or reinforcing it as a necessary, like, totem in our society, but they are forging intimacy with one another. And I think that's what's so compelling about films that deal with ensemble casts who are acting out, who are playing the horse, so to speak. And and there's the dual performance of performing as someone who's performing in in working girls where it's just like you, you one senses at every turn that the, the the clients and the men who play them are, are really getting the short end of the stick because just what I think is expressed through the way the cameras are, are positioning on the conversations the eyes being rolled when a man is being earnest and vulnerable in bed I think is just <laughs> it, it's a very blink and you miss it and and, and both of the films that we're dealing with today primarily kind of deal with silence and intimacy remarkably well. One thing that about Working Girl that struck me, and I think your essay so really drew my attention to is, you know, you made this great comment about the film's titular confusion with Mike Nichols's Working Girl. Which came out later, right? Yeah, how much later? Only a couple years later or something. But this idea of the girl boss, that working girl is very much a parody of, even though I I feel like that term wasn't around then, we weren't talking about feminist capitalism or, you know, this neoliberal feminism in the same way in the 80s, I imagine. I wasn't around. But, you know, I found the character of Lucy so interesting, you know, because like you say in your essay, she is very much dressed and presents herself as a smart businesswoman and entrepreneur who realized early on that sex and money, you know, are so tied together and, you know, turned it into this business idea. She loves talking about brands. She's so particular about the presentation of her establishment. It's the kind of stuff that I think we often see with the madam trope in movies about sex work, but there's just something so corporate about Lucy in Working Girls that I feel like I hadn't encountered before. And I, I, 
it seemed to me like it was really like you like you said you know ca- capitalizing or maybe commenting on like a cultural cusp like the movie just came out before wall street just before certain realms uh, particularly of the underground or of or radical spaces began to be subsumed by you know the language of mainstream capitalism i mean that's sort of the central conceit of the movie right is this conflation between corporate workspace or just everyday 9 to 5 work and this what's previously been presented as sort of a underground and more mysterious work situation. There are a lot of comedy is generated from that in this movie. I remember there's that scene early on when Don says to uh, was is trying to convince Molly to write an essay, a college essay about charismatic communists in history or something like that. <laughs> and uh, Molly's response is that she's already selling her body. She doesn't want to sell her mind. I think that's a very pointed joke right there. There is a lot of tragedy. The the laughter through tears, I think, of how the post-war era didn't exactly shake out for these two hardwired genders and the institution of marriage that, that kind of really dominate Lucy's facade. I, I think she almost kind of has this Doris Day affect, but is in this sphere that that very much shirks respectability and decorum there don't seem to be any dialogue issues with like representing or or acknowledging a woman's capitalist worth within the parameters of the brothel it's like oh it's nothing personal you just won't get as much many men or oh you're at the wrong hours it's just like it's like the truest attitude about capitalism that one could possibly have however I do think with Lucy, there, there's an intense potential denial about her own age and, and how she mitigates that through the power that her role in this space offers. And capitalism is kind of like a band-aid for that. It's, it's very interesting. There's kind of a, a lot of <laughs> intergenerational feminist commentary right there just in terms of who wants to just make art and maybe do sex work and who wants to get married or be supported by a man and, and be content with that, that, that is a really, really noticeable from even the first shots of the main character waking up and kind of sorting through pictures and reels and, and the trappings of her own artistic practice autonomously from the brothel. Although the brothel is filled with examples of artistic practice that are for sale. There are framed pictures on the wall, there are photography magazines. So I think the film is also making a pointed comment on the question of where you draw the line, not only in the um, somewhat cliched, what's the difference between erotica and porn, which continues to haunt liberal framings, but really about work. How, How do you describe your work if your work as a photographer is then reproduced to sell shoes? How do you describe your work as a photographer if it's then situated in the white cube of the gallery if it's hung on the wall of a brothel. Um, Those encounters and the moment when Molly tries to encourage April, who's one of the more experienced workers who comes in at night, who's returning to the brothel, to quit and sell her jewellery. And April just reads her on the economic realities, her economic privilege as someone who has a partner who is doing her artistic practice compared to this idea that craft could be monetized feels like an absolute response to Molly saying to Dawn, I'm not going to rent my brain. Well, that's your privilege. 
you know, and to what extent as an artist are you in this world where the Lower East Side is gentrifying, these spaces are being turned into white cube galleries, those lines around what is artwork, what is sex work are being changed not on the terms of people who are doing both, which was not uncommon throughout the queer and feminist world in different definitions, in different ways, or engaging with sex workers but on the terms of capitalism and in the ter- on the terms of like neoliberal turbo capitalism. And my reference for Lucy is, you know, hashtag girlboss Margaret Thatcher, who was definitely pioneering that entire category, <laughs> including the helmet hair from 1979. And I think that era is really, I, you know, I was born in 78. So I, I was peripherally aware of this in the in the 80s the the era of Anita Roddick that there was this wave of the the self-actualization of the successful businesswoman being held up as this neoliberal white feminist triumph and that is partially Lucy's framing what you're pointing to and what Working Girls really explores I think this difference between selling your mind and selling your body and you know art versus the labor of work of of sex I'm thinking of movies particularly non-western movies for instance Flowers of Shanghai the Hu Shaoxin film there's a tradition in India of films about courtesans where sex work is also an art these historical, traditional, royal courtesans who were also repositories of culture and art, right? And they were trained in the art of seduction, but also in various other things that we would, you know, consider the fine arts, for instance, or, you know, the performing arts. And how this, like, corporate depiction of sex work, contemporary sex work, seems so, I guess, removed from that? How insular sex work tends to be in, in Western films, you know, and when, with you mentioning that, I thought of Funeral Parade of Roses, which screened at Metrograph a couple of years ago. It's um, Tashio Matsumoto, I think, in 1969 art house film about a trans film sex worker and a sort of coterie of them <laughs> that are existing sort of, sort of, by tragic but glamorous means and it's very just ingratiated to its setting it doesn't hold these capitalist notions of public and private property so aggressively and i i, I do think about that it, it is kind of the loss of the downtown and the loss of the underground and rebuilding those spaces and, and redefining them <laughs> in the contemporary because i do think those cultures have do still exist but they they've migrated online at least initially yeah. I also think there's something there about like compartmentalization of work. This might be particularly like American phenomenon, but you know, we separate our lives and our work so much and creative pursuits are considered to be much more a part of our lives outside of work. And I think working girls definitely is just like a remarkable metaphor for it's it works both as a metaphor. I think you talk about this, right? So how it's both metaphorical and also just this like almost doc, not documentary, but there's like a anthropological element to the film in the way that it's sort of laying out the way things, the the processes by which this business takes place. My point here is though, was that it's comment on work and what it means to be a worker and how it forces this compartmentalization of work, life and creativity as, as part of, and being an artist maybe as being part of life, not part of work. And especially true in the case of Molly, 
who keeps her work a secret from her partner. I guess my question is though is obviously I'm I'm this question is sort of ahistorical in a certain way, but is the depiction of sex work as something corporate, as you know, at the end of the day, something that is very transactional, more honest and less romanticized than the depiction of sex work as something that is traditional, that is tied up in a history of art and craft and seduction and practice in that way. I Again, I'm comparing two very different contexts, but I'm just curious. I, I, that's what I've been trying to wrap my head around because, of course, when you watch a film like Flowers of Shanghai, they are also talking about exploitation. They're talking about being treated like slaves. But there is an understanding that their work is way more expansive than the transactions of courting, you know, a paying customer. And that's what I'm I'm kind of trying to understand, you know, which is the more honest understanding of sex work and also of work. I was just going to say that it makes it really clear that sex work, while often considered a universal, is as contextual as other forms of work. It's embedded in cultural contexts, it's embedded in economies, in histories, and depictions of it are embedded in cultural economies as well. So if we were talking 150 years ago, obviously we wouldn't be podcasting, but we might point to a book like Zola's Nana and say this also depicts the, with incredible romanticism, the tragic fate of the sex worker who achieves this place in the cultural imaginary or Mimi in La Boheme. And that long tradition that I think Working Girls, part of what it's doing is presenting and problematizing of the association with the female performer with sex work, that any woman or femme who is on the stage, is on screen, must default be also available for sex work, not just on their own terms as a form of economic survival, but that is the assumption that goes back to the 16th and 17th century in, in France and in England. And so contextually, so many American films thinking about Marilyn Monroe and Bus Stop, thinking about Marlena Dietrich and, you know, almost anything, um, but particularly in, in some of the films with Sternberg, pivot on this amb supposed ambiguity about the performer's relationship to sex work, whether that is included in the performance, whether all of their romantic overtures are in and of themselves sex work designed to achieve a capitalist end and it's no surprise that that narrative about the performer emerges at the same time as post-feudal capitalism and the revaluation of everything economically so I think it tells us something super interesting about cultural contexts and how those produce cultural narratives in terms of these questions regarding compartmentalization and also which representations kind of give life more meaning to witness, I, I think it's really foiling because the profession does hinge on performance. The boundaries that you draw are always kind of going to be pushed and changed. And and it's three it's still a three-dimensional form, but but I just think it these movies are easy to talk about in this context. They're not necessarily easy to write about side by side because just the context are so difficult. It's not something that can necessarily be done easily. 
but but I do think both kind of sways have merit and I, I I like being reminded that this one exists and this one exists and and because it, male directors have benefited from both the trope and, and Ernest dives into these characters over the years they're they're very plentiful a lot of them also have queer undertones which I think is one of those interesting pathologies where okay so you have an actress who's playing a sex worker who then must also kind of embody that in private life who actually is queer. I, I'm, I'm thinking of Ona Munson, who was Belle Watling and Gone with the Wind. There were just these layers of kind of complex identities. And I, I personally like to unpack those case by case rather than, than trying to hold the character up to some standard that's always kind of shifting for us culturally, at least in feminist terms. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I'm wondering why I also feel the need to understand what is a more honest depiction of sex work as opposed to all the other depictions of work that we see in movies. It always involves performance. And I think there is an impulse while watching these movies to try and figure out if the woman is experiencing pleasure or not just the woman, but the worker. I mean, is she actually in it? Is the sex real? Is the orgasm real? In terms of working goals, one of the most uh, or some of the best scenes in the movie are the sex scenes, right? And they involve so many different charades and, you know, little uh, comedic set pieces. And you have these moments of the women rolling their eyes and sort of seeming a little bit bored and jaded and out of it. There is an element to which it is a chore for them, but at the same time, they're so professional about it you know they they're not necessarily repelled by it they are by some customers but I don't know they have a much easier relationship with their work than I think a lot of movies that depict sex work as you know always tragic or always fraught might and we were talking about days Clint and I before earlier today and we're kind of you know trying to understand what the sex worker in days who basically gives Lee Kang Sheng's character this amazing massage ending with a, you know, with a happy ending. And we were trying to understand, like, does it matter that we don't know how he feels in the scene? Because we see Lee Kang Sheng's character's amazing release, this like, you know, the alleviation of his pain, which is so visceral. And then that followed up with the climax of sexual release. We don't, exactly know what the guy who's giving the massage is feeling and is that something like why is that a question that comes up like why do we need to know this do we need to know how he feels or is it okay to concede that it is his job and people have various kinds of emotions linked to their jobs and that emotion can be pleasure but it need not be pleasure or different forms of pleasure that they get out of take, like the pleasure of doing a, a job of a job well done. <laughs> but before we move on, I quickly wanted to say that uh, So's essay also talks about how one of the 
client in Working Girls is played by Richard Leacock. And that scene, I think, is really interesting that Richard Leacock, the great uh, cinema verite director, a very funny performance. He's Joseph, the Harvard PhD who likes to be tied up. Who tries to convince her to, she's like, you're a very smart woman. Like, what, what are you doing in this? He's he's Lucy's um, economic advisor, so it's it's so Brechtian at that moment that the whole conceit of the film almost falls to pieces. But his performance is so committed, and one of one of the things I was thinking about with Days and Working Girls, which I think applies to this question that Devika is raising, and and Clint, you were also speculating about, which is exactly emotional labor in the original sense that Ali Hochschild <laughs> intended it. Um, or developed it from other people's work. Emotional labor, you mean the fact that I have to reply to texts from friends? Exactly. <laughs> that is the original meaning. <laughs> Not, why do we speculate about sex workers and customer service people's smiles or gestures and whether they are sincerely meant to us? Um, the contrast between days and working girls for me is not just how the intimate encounter is shot which I think we can talk about as well but that incredible scene before it happens where Kang um, who as you could say is played by Li Kang Sheng prepares the room he puts his money in the safe he strips the bed which is one of the activities that we see the workers and working girls undertaking really quickly often as a favor for each other re-preparing the room and it's it's really interesting to know all of the brothel scenes in working girls were shot in one room that was just redecorated for each set piece so this sense of repetition reuse reconfiguring the repetition of the fantasies but he prepares that space and then he lies down when it when there's the cut, you see him lying completely vulnerable, naked, and we don't know who's there. None is off screen, and we just hear this noise. We don't know what it is, and we'll come to associate it with the opening of the bottle of the massage oil and the provision of this healing touch. And then afterwards, he showers without having to be told to, and none joins him in the shower. And that's the exact opposite of what we see in Working Girls, where the clients have to be told to shower, sometimes repeatedly. They have to insist on it, and they say, no, I'm clean. And it's the working women who are also doing the domestic feminized labor, changing the sheets, stripping the sheets, providing the towels, washing the towels downstairs, all of that domestic labor that we see in the film as well. And it just absolutely pierced me in Sai's film to see the care with which Kang was making this space for the encounter and the different understanding of sex work as something that was potentially a mutual recognition. And we all have transactional exchanges with each other in retail, with therapy, all over the place with respect. Why should sex work be ex exempt from that? And the care with which he was treating his own body afterwards, this gift that Non had given him, and that Non comes and joins him in the shower silently. So that those contrasts in representation, as well as the way that they're seen, the camera is very level, so the characters appear on the same level to us. The framing in the, the scene of intimacy means that we don't see any genitals or genital action, which again may raise for some people those questions of did they, didn't they, is it real, isn't it, did they practice, you know, but provides them a kind of respect for their intimacy. It's about the feeling. Yeah, it really, it really got me. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Same. <laughs> it's interesting that you say uh, emotional labor because I was like, oh, it's it's all labor that's coded as feminine historically in our culture. And if you you go far enough back to to pre Freudian days, um, trans women sort of have this this unique survival mechanism in turn of the century Western cities where sex work propagated fulfillment and also personal economic status of some sort. So, so these like threads, you know, it, it, when films kind of try to dive headfirst into homoerotic encounters that happen within the parameters of sex work, I, I think that's, that's where my brain goes. There's so many interesting things happening in days surrounding exteriors too, because it opens with the extended, almost eco-feminist Sean Dealman <laughs> kitchen cooking moment, and then concludes with the exterior shots and, and you know, the music box the client had given him. And uh, Jean Dealman is such a good comparison. I'm, I'm just like, why didn't I think of that before? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I was waiting. I, I wasn't sure how days was ultimately going to go. And I think it's one of those movies that requires you to be patient with all of the details and and be immersed in them by virtue of the choice to not have subtitling even even in the massage scene what I was so taken aback by was how the initial hand movements are just they're very practiced but they're not dehumanizing in a way where one's folding laundry whatsoever it's just oh you can see the skill of the labor in that moment that's actually really fabulous. I, I don't know if I've felt that in a movie about sex work before where I've actually been able to grasp into the work without sort of the directorial vision encroaching upon it. I'll, I'll, disres I'll, I'll respect to Borden, of course, but the, and then the, the, the nature of bodies being flawed and people who care for them, this isn't to put sex work characters, of course, on a pedestal where, where we must hold one more, you know, uh, thing above our heads and juggle it. But I, I think there's something compelling and meaningful about that that just ties back into feminine labor and care and and the different forms care can take and how that might not even be visually represented were this a film that had more of a BDSM scene because then there are like more stigmas kind of foisted on framing that image in a way where the viewer can understand what's happening. So I, I think Days is a very challenging film to make and just very fulfilling to watch in that sense. It makes me think about the emergence in, say, the last 10, 15 years of films about carers, which are also often films about migration as Days is. Uh, so Lingua Franca is probably one of the more recent examples but I'm thinking about films by Anne Hui I'm thinking about particularly films from Latin America and uh, as Sarah says this attention to skilled labor close to the body is something that particularly Hollywood cinema has like run in the opposite direction from because it's the body but these tendernesses to bodies in need whether that is in need of of all different kinds of care and attention, some of which are erotic, some of which are to do with other kinds of pain. Maybe that's a way of, of framing it. The, sh the shift to looking at that, this figure of the carer, um, and as Sarah says, sometimes this is 
by directors who are fetishizing that figure or exoticizing them. Sometimes it's from within the community. And understanding these caring practices as belonging to whole people, whole bodies, cultural moments, and particularly to being about migration. So Thai's films have often been concerned with crossing borders or not being allowed to cross borders and the politics of that and the interior exterior relation I'm thinking of I don't want to sleep alone and the way that that film creates the whole city as an interior and the interior space as an exterior because it's so leaky it's so porous and open to the world and again the way that prone bodies are seen in that film as this connection between the vulnerability in the exterior space and the potential for intimacy in the interior space and I felt the almost crystallization of that in days where it comes to be between these these two bodies, these two trajectories, one that is much more around a kind of slightly more privileged nomadism for Kang and then being, I think, an undocumented migrant, non-working in these interstices and what happens when they're in that interior and prone together and um, what emerges out of that, that I want to think about these films with in order to perhaps start thinking about, as Sarah says, the difficulty of taking sex work as a genre, it's not a film genre, to think about films that depict caring labor close to the body and the ways in which they depict that as work, as skill, uh, as difficult as passion, and the way they relate it to economic situations like migration, like gentrification. For me, that uh, as someone who is also a labor activist in, in the screen sector, where I think it's asking cinema to think about its exploitation of bodies, its lack of attention. Why do we need intimacy coordinators? Because cinema is so poor at understanding intimacy. I want to think, yeah, about care work as this as this broader term and where sex work sits into it. And maybe that, you know, on the one side, there's the romanticization, on the other side, there's the tragicization and punishment. And in the middle is this meeting where we think about what are these types of feminized working class care that are often done by migrants, or though not only often done by people crossing categories, um, spaces for femme people. And what does it mean to show them as skilled? Yeah, that's such a great way to put it, you know, thinking about it as care work, I think, opens up a lot of the questions we've been talking about, the difficulty of pinning down, you know, what constitutes as sex, sex work, what constitutes as an honest depiction of sex work. I think looking at it from the point of care uh, really expands it. But I also want to think of, you know, we we've been talking about sex work as something intimate and private mostly the films that we've been talking about stuff that takes place within bedrooms exchanges between two individuals what about sex work in cinema that is more aligned with I think the cinematic which is spectacle and display so I'm thinking about films like Hustlers you know films about strippers and films about performers that blur the line between on stage performance and sex work. I'm thinking about the Magic Mike films. And I wonder if Shakedown, which I know uh, both Sarah and so you, you wanted to talk about, sort of gets to that category as well, where not in the same way as Magic Mike, I know, but it's not something quite so private and insular and atomized as these like brothel films that we've been talking about. And those films are about work as well, about training, about right, learning right. the actual skill of 
another artisan. He's also an yeah. artist, right? And trying to make his... About turning your body into something, into a sexual object worthy of display. But there is such a fantasy also of control in the actual sexual part of that work. Like when they're on stage and women are under their sway, you don't get the sense of inescapable menace that to me always accompanies uh, movies where femme uh, folks are sex workers, you know? Um, And I think that's what to some extent allows the spectacular aspect of those movies to be so unabashed and feel so full of abandon. One of the things I find fascinating about the, the the magic mic explosion, which I'm not too familiar with, I will concede, <laughs> but I, I'm going to get on it, I promise. But I, I do think my familiarity with that type of image, the hyper-masculine male stripper or exotic entertainer kind of is derived from hip-hop from the South in the early 2000s. I was just like familiar with the descent standing under a waterfall <laughs> shirtless. It was kind of already enmeshed in, in black culture in this way that I'm interesting interested to see be explored a little more in film. And, and there are movies that try to go there, but they, they, they tend to feel a little chaste. But, but I guess that brings me to Shakedown too which so is familiar with, I believe, but um, it's Layla Weinrob's first verite and first feature length film, I believe that premiered at Mammoth PS1 a few years ago. And it's about a lesbian, I guess, turned lesbian queer owner who has a strip club that's pretty much black only. And Layla gains entrance to this place and develops trusting relationships with the individuals there. Like started the project when she was a baby and finally finished it. So I think that you have those elements of trust and then you have the security of this place and also the ephemeral security of it because it's always under threat of being shuttered. But yeah, just a really fantastic scrappy salt of the earth documentary that doesn't mince, mince images about, about, sex work and I think it manages to be very delegate to its subjects while also being frank about what is happening here and what the what the appeal is and who comes and why and and sometimes the end of the day is is <laughs> you're paying a broker fee for community for many people in these situations people engage with sex work for for countless reasons but I think that sometimes is one of the significant ones you know that this is a space where with a certain amount of capital and good manners you you can have a good time and that that's freeing I think in in a paradoxical way but really fantastic one of the most striking qualities of the film almost a hallucinatory quality was seeing it realize the beginning of pariah so Dereese's film Pariah opens at a club, a strip club that appears to address specifically the gaze of Black queer women and um, trans masks, masculine or centered people, sequence, delirious and beloved sequence to my neck, my back, which is, you know, the moment <laughs> you know, lesbian cinema began. Let's just, you know, obviously not. But 
it felt like this project that had moved through black queer community and and manifested and shakedown is I think partially a beloved film because it has that relation and partially because of this depiction of precarity which is also uh, a big part of lucid moon sunset blush which is about squatting and about how often these spaces are only seen when they disappear or at the point of their disappearance so they are often conceived in that anthropological manner we will only tell you about a culture as it's disappearing and I don't think that that was that's at all the case with with Shakedown and the club Shakedown. But that is often the way in which funding is invested or projects are realized is that cusp moment, which brings us back to working girls in some sense of why do we always, why are we always shown it as this precarious, fragile, disappearing rather than practical, thriving, scenario do you think it's because nostalgia redeems it in some way for people who do not otherwise want to redeem it i possibly and i also don't want to deny that it is a narrative that sex work spaces particularly if they're queer owned particularly if they're black owned are often going to be facing precarity and precaritization uh but the repetition of that narrative does feel somewhat vexed and days does step outside that although Divica as you say it it does so by depicting it as this intimate meeting of two individuals rather than looking at a space a community a culture uh, a moment in historical and economic time I, I that's so interesting this idea of, of all that's gold can't stay I, I've I guess I'm thinking about it now as, is are we not giving sex workers and these, the people who create and conjure up these stories enough credit are sex workers and sex worker artists kind of very fiercely guarded out of necessity about their contemporaries. So maybe the image, it's not safe for a lot of creatives too. I think that's one of the things I'm always foiled by and in writing about this topic is like, I, I, don't really want to put down all my cards, but you can have this one. <laughs> but but no, I was thinking about that and and laughably the ever-changing city and and this industry kind of being at the mercy of whatever capitalism capitalism does. I it, it macabrely shows up in Gone with the Wind too with Belle Watling as Atlanta burns and she's like waving down to Rhett Butler as the city's under siege and, and, you know, the profession will soldier on somehow. People will find ways to support themselves, but I, I just think it's the, the liminality of it is, is both foiling and, and sort of endearing to me. And maybe that liminality and precarity speaks to the distinction also that Devrico is making between the private spaces. So thinking about a film like Jean Dielman, which is so focused on the domestic space, on alienation, isolation, and the performance spaces. And then a film like Working Girls, which is an ensemble, but in a very particularly conceived performance space, which is intended to replicate to some extent the domestic experience, the wife experience, down to the provision of the whiskey on arrival, but with, you know, with the direct conversation cutting to sexual acts, there's something 
that is so absolutely tied up with economic precarity as the as undergirding sex work and performance work such a history of that and such a history of how that manifests architecturally as well that it feels that like this conversation about the spaces and architectures is so relevant it crystallizes so much of what we're talking about these bodies move in spaces and those spaces are subject to capital and they are subject to particular angles of capital racist capital sexist capital and that is for me working girls was the first film i'd seen that stated that explicitly even if i'd seen it addressed in a tragic manner in fassbinder films in some ways in almodovar's films although the status of sex workers in his films is much more ambivalent that working girls just came out and said it had the characters speak about it articulate it from their position felt so refreshing to me and maybe until tangerine we don't see another example of that articulation of like this is what the deal is yeah i think that movie uh, i also just love how uh, in working girls it's set up as if as like a it's like a backstage front room situation and you have this ensemble cast and a cast and they're playing these parts and then they're all talking backstage and talking about their roles and you know who's going to do what on stage it's almost just like a classic theater a movie about theater while at the same time there is this artificiality to the sets that I think reminds me of the seven-year itch, that house where there's the with the staircase, and it just seems very artificial and and theatrical in a way, and the lighting of the film too, sitcom-ish too, sitcom-y, yeah, definitely, and the lighting, the kind of flat lighting, which recalls both sitcoms but also workplaces, like a you know that flat fluorescent light. Anyway, I we can, I feel, I kind of feel like working girls could yield. A much longer discussion. There's a it's a it's a really remarkable and and kind of fascinating movie. But before we get too far, we did want to talk a little bit about uh, about Shakedown and the unique distribution of that film, which we had kind of touched on before we started recording. But I know that you guys have some thoughts about. I, I'm always fascinated with independent documentary filmmakers, not 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 simply because of, of the commitment to the work and the sincere love for it, but but the patience. I, I feel like this, the unique trajectory of, of spending ten plus years on a film is, and specifically about something this thankless and, and lost to history. It's just like I'm going to do it, and 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 Layla did in the film, I believe premiered at Berlinale internationally and tracked to New York, had a few screenings, had a decent review in the New Yorker. And I I didn't hear anything about the film for a year or so after its release. And then I believe it was this past year, Layla connected with Pornhub, who also has done unique collaborative projects with with hip hop artists who are LGBT. And so I'm always (laughs) really interested in in their corporate partnerships, I suppose. But anyway, Layla elected to distribute the film for free briefly through Pornhub. And I thought that was a really interesting act of respect because Pornhub is also lending its name to figures who might be in that line of work still who were featured in the film who might be able to use this to parlay their lives. It seemed like a really interesting kind of symbiotic thing where Layla was taking 
everyone along for the ride with her, which it, it was just like mad props. This is incredible. And, and to make something that universally accessible in the era of streaming, despite how one feels about Pornhub, it, it, it seems very unique. There are a few places you can go online where you don't have to have an account to watch something. And, and in spinning out that way, I was just thinking about a, a different type of sex work, which is pornography and how is, you know, these conversations about how is porn being archived as things are being taken offline. The crackdown on civil society continues in this way for, for that sect of sex workers in a really kind of sinister and foreboding way right now. But, but that's just one of those things where the ground is always, this is the, the tumultuous ground, I suppose, of this moment is how long can OnlyFans last? How long will Instagram allow <laughs> men to have their t-shirts off? You know, like one of those the things where the, what's, the changes that are happening are, are happening under our feet right now. And, and Layla definitely resisted that, I feel like, and really went hard. And I'm super excited to see what she does next. This is not super related, but I did want to mention the absolutely comical fiasco that happened last week when Instagram accidentally or, you know, hastily banned uh, the poster of Pedro Almodovar's new film, Parallel Mothers, which Uh uh, features a lactating nipple and then released a statement apologizing for doing so. And of course, it just rehashes the age old question of what is art, you know, what is permitted to exceed the bounds of respectability and good taste, you know, what sort of framing allows something to be liberated from these constraints. <laughs> and on that note, it may be worth noting that Working Girls itself came up against this, with struggling, obviously, for an NC-17 rating, and the MPAA insisting that a hand job with a cum shot be cut, where Born in Flames had also faced a cut of a sex worker putting a condom on a penis in a montage sequence so at the moment the obsession is lactation uh erections and controls are also it seems to be something to do with fluids which is one of the things i found so exciting about the massage oil in in days not only is it this slick surface that is so beautifully lit enabling touch but it draws attention to the literally the money shot that is not present but that also so much censorship seems to omit uh, omit us from seeing emissions. Um, This idea of the inside of the body coming outside very, very vulnerably. Um, And so much of what happens with censorship of of online representation, as with offline representation, is to do with these very specific acts. We have some legislation around it in the UK as well, which outlawed a number of specific acts. And I think 2017 that were described as a violent pornography, all of which related to women and femmes being in control. So face sitting, for example, was outlawed and the sex worker festival and feminist sex festival, porn festivals have both um, spoken out against the way in which censorship is organized around this understanding of which acts, which bodies, with which money, in which lighting. I feel like we have these very same issues in the United States, but we're more preoccupied with artifice and like not allowing artifice to be part and parcel of the body. And it's showing up in, 
in the ways we perceive the humanities of trans people to to sex workers and and but there's a line in working girls where she says where molly says working women aren't supposed to have periods or bad moods and it, it's within the brothel that that she's running up against these same issues in terms of like how do you have a body in this world even if you're in the oldest profession where the lines are constantly changing to, to at the mercy of capitalism in this way and it it kind of trickles out into how these films are, are received too and and how they're distributed the idea of having a body having work having artwork having agency over all of those and Borden faced censorship with her subsequent film love crimes as as you mentioned and the fact that Borden has worked particularly in the last few years to make her films particularly um, Borden Flames and Working Girls more freely available so in 2020 she put Working Girls up on Vimeo for free with a message that was particularly addressing sex workers saying please stay safe especially sex workers at the the point when the pandemic had shut down the sex work industry particularly in Seattle and on the west coast and the film entered a lot of conversations it sort of renewed its critical and spectatorial life through those conversations some of which you can see on the Criterion DVD and which have been hosted as the film um, travels in this new beautiful version so that idea of having agency over your body over your work so you can choose who to share it with again that line going from interior to exterior from the individual to shared I think is is really at the heart of of both of working girls and days like how do we both have agency when we're in pain when we're in capitalism when we're migrants and still make this point that we can choose to share mutually mutual aid can emerge so I think that's a great note to end on We've covered so much ground and, you know, thought about sex work and care work and intimacy and emotional labor and art and erotica and porn. I mean, you guys just took us all over the place. And thank you so much for joining us and just enriching this conversation with with all your insights. And we cannot wait to have you back. Yes, definitely. Thank you both. It was really, really great. Amazing. It's a pleasure. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.